Last week we began a new series for this new year and even this new decade. The title of this new series is From Ruin to Restoration. So at the beginning of 2020, we are going to be studying the second part of the book of Isaiah, beginning in the 40th chapter, because the book of Isaiah in, in its whole is a story that moves from, from ruin to restoration. You see, in July 587 B.C., Israel was ruined. The armies of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon broke through the walls of Jerusalem. They put the city to the torch and leveled its buildings. The temple was raised to the foundations. The people were slaughtered. And those who were not put to the sword were hauled off to Babylon in chains. In spite of warning after warning by prophet after prophet, their rebellion against God, their corruption, their idolatry, their injustice had finally come home to roost. But in the midst of that ruin, God sent the prophet Isaiah with a message of restoration. Not just of the restoration of their lives or their country or their identity, but a restoration, a word that would restore their faith that the God who had led them out of slavery in Egypt would lead them home, out of exile, and lead them forever as His people. He would restore their purpose and fulfill His promise to use Israel as His light of truth and His arm of compassion to all of the nations of the earth. And so we begin reading today in Isaiah chapter 41, beginning in the 8th verse, and then we're going, to, we're going to read through the 10th verse and then skip down to the 17th verse. So as you read along, please note that change. But hear the word of God through the prophet Isaiah to his people. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous, omnipotent hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. To verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Let's take just a few minutes to understand our terms. What are we talking about when we're talking about moving from ruin to restoration? What is ruin and what is restoration? I think these are two terms that that almost work better by example than they do by definition. So let me describe something. Last summer, on Father's Day, a lightning strike led to a power surge that started an electrical fire in our house. In an upstairs bedroom, my daughter's bedroom, and in our attic. We smelled smoke, but we didn't know where the fire was coming from until Morgan finally went outside and saw flames lapping up the sides of one of our rooftop dormers. Now when we discovered the flames, it was mayhem. How many of you have ever seen those commercials on TV? Mayhem, the obnoxious guy who ruins your life. Well, when we, when we saw it, it was absolute mayhem. I came running into the house, I ran upstairs, and I yelled at Bo, who was in his room, Bo, get the dog and get out of the house. He did. He grabbed the dog and he ran out of the house. He saw his mother. She said, Bo, go over to the neighbors. He ran over to the neighbors and he knocked on the door and Mrs. Garcia opened the door and she said, Bo, what's going on? He said, I don't know. My dad told me to get out of the house and come over here. (laughs) Now, I will confess my memories of that night are somewhat chaotic, but they are clear fire and smoke and water. The fire department came, our neighbors came out, and we all watched and prayed. Now, first of all, before I want to go any farther, I want to say that we were so blessed and we were so protected by God, and what could have been an absolute catastrophe was contained in time. But while it was burning, it felt like we were in one of those mayhem commercials. I mean, how many of you have have ever experienced mayhem in your life? How many of you have ever had a friend or a family member, a son or a daughter, a child who has experienced mayhem in his or her life? The point of the advertising campaign is that mayhem strikes everyone. We all know that feeling of ruin. Maybe someone you know just got some heartbreaking news about a medical test. Maybe you know a couple who are exhausted in their marriage and are on the verge of divorce. Or maybe people whose broken dreams of marriage have broken them. Maybe you know someone who's reached the breaking point, taking care of an aging parent, or perhaps one day you walked into work to find one of your co-workers packing up all of her personal possessions into a box because she lost her job. Maybe you went into your child's bedroom one day and found your daughter looking at a cell phone screen, her eyes puffy, her teeth clenched on the verge of hyperventilation because somebody was bullying her on the other end of that phone. Maybe you just know someone who is a long way from God, who's making a ruin of their lives, who's making selfish, short-sighted, self-destructive, abusive decisions. Maybe... You are just stuck, and depression is overwhelming you, or addiction is controlling you. Lost, scared, broken, ruined. Ruin can be physical, it can be economic, it can be emotional, or it can be psychological. It can be spiritual. 
It can be personal, but it can also be public. Consider this, injustice, racism, homelessness, prostitution, exploitation, human trafficking, all signs of ruin in our culture. I mean, look into the dark corners of our cities, under the shadows of our skyscrapers, under bridges, in dilapidated neighborhoods, in homeless camps, in many schools, and you will find ruin. Generational poverty allowed by societal apathy. Ruin. We understand ruin. And sometimes that ruin is even more painful when it's not falling down around our, us on our own shoulders, but we have to watch somebody else, someone we love, who is having to endure that pain. But when we are in ruin, when our lives are in ruin, we need the other end of that spectrum. We need restoration. And that's why we're studying Isaiah, because Isaiah is about God's promise and process of restoration. Because Israel went from ruin to restoration. Now, two things that I learned about restoration through the experience of our house fire was that first, it is a slow and an expensive process. That is to say, it doesn't all happen at once. It takes time. It's a journey that you walk. The second thing that I learned about restoration is that it's not something you can do alone. Whether your house is gutted by fire or your heart is gutted by tragedy and grief, recovery and restoration are a process and you can't do it alone. And so, it is to that point that Isaiah's words speak today. As we look back at our scripture lesson for today, what does Isaiah say about God in the restoration process? Well, first he says that he will be with us. And then second, he says that he will provide what we need. This is the dual promise of God's presence and provision. So let's take a closer look at that. Verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. The road to restoration is not a road that you walk alone. And it's not something you walk alone because the first thing that God promises is His presence. Fear not, for I am with you. I know I'm talking a lot about insurance this morning, but if you examine the advertising campaigns of most insurance companies, you'll notice a theme running through all of them. More than their policies, Good insurance companies want to sell you on their people. It's not just about the policy that you've bought. It's about the people who will be taking care of you in a crisis. So, you're in good hands with Allstate. Or consider State Farm. Just say the jingle, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, and you're agent will magically appear, teleported from parts unknown, to be with you. Don't do that right now. We didn't, that'd be getting messy. But whatever it is, the point is, it's not about the policies, it's about the people. Who is going to stand with you? Who's going to walk through this process? Even if they don't directly reference their people in the slogan, it's always the foundation of their work. Because when ruin strikes, you need people. 
Because after all, what's worse than crying out for help and no one comes? When we are dealing with ruin, we need people. When we were dealing with the fire, so many people came out to support us. But it's not just that we had people there. We had people who knew what they were doing. Insurance agents, workmen, friends, firemen. We not only need people, we need people who know what they're doing. So who are your people? Who are your people? God said to Israel, you are my people, and I am your God. I want you to hear what's going on here. The words there in Hebrew are Yahweh Eloheinu, which mean not simply that I am Yahweh, I'm Jehovah, a God. They mean I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah, your God. It's not just about identity, it's about a relationship. I mean, we are his people, but he is our God. That's a relationship that matters when we are in ruin and in need of restoration. God's presence is a comfort. And not just because he's another sympathetic, warm body saying, there, there, I'm so sorry that this has happened to you, but because he is God. As it says in verse 8, his presence is locked in on the ironclad covenant promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And why does that matter? It matters because he created everything. He doesn't just know a lot. He knows everything. He can actually do something. He does not just say, I'm sorry, I'm here. But he says, fear not, for I am with you. I am with you. The I am. God himself is with us. He's even better than the farmer's insurance slogan. You know, they say, we know a lot because we've seen a lot. God, he knows everything because he's seen everything. And he made everything. And he holds everything in the palm of his hand. When you look at this passage, God is saying, I will be with you. I have not cast you off. You are in good hands. I am here. And I am your God. Second, God says that in addition to his presence, he will send his provision. What's interesting here is that Here, Isaiah likens the ruin of Israel to a wilderness. This word wilderness is a word of deep spiritual and symbolic significance because for the people of Israel, the wilderness was a memory and a symbol of wandering and failure. You see, after God had liberated them from Egypt, as they were about to cross over into the promised land, their courage failed and their faith failed turned to ashes. I mean, even after God had broken them free from Egypt using supernatural plague after supernatural miracle and plague, after He commanded the seas to part and fed them in the desert, after He had stunned the world by these gigantic acts of power, they still chickened out at the border because they were scared of the inhabitants and the challenges that they might face. And so God sentenced them, sentenced the people to wander in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years until that faithless generation died out and was replaced by the next. And then the wilderness appears in Scripture again, centuries later, 
because it was in the wilderness that Christ was driven to be tested. There He was pushed to the limits of human endurance and even beyond. There the stricken Son of Man was taunted and tempted by Satan himself with food and glory and power if He would only give in to His desperation. If He would only give in to His exhaustion and succumb and bend the knee. And of course, Christ prevailed where Israel had failed. But in Isaiah's time and even now, the wilderness was a projection of fear and failure. And when we hear wilderness, we need to understand and we need to look at it through that lens. This is not the Sierra Club idea of wilderness. This is the desert of bleached bones and dead and desiccated trees, of, gra of cracked ground and scorched heat, scorching heat. My friend Patrick Cobb uh, has once said that it's like hunting out in parts of West Texas where every tree, every thorny bush, every rock, plant, lizard, snake, and animal is designed to hurt you. That's the kind of desert wilderness we're talking about. The wilderness is a place of desperation, of temptation and deprivation, of lawlessness, slavery, and exile, mayhem, and ruin where there is no rest. And the people in that historical and spiritual wilderness, to those people God speaks again His word of comfort. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness, remember that, I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. He will give them the water they need. But not only that, I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. Isaiah here mentions seven different types of trees, all shade trees. And as J.A. Moiter points out, these are all trees that grow in that region for the sake of shade. Because after all, what do people crossing a desert need more than anything else? They need water and they need shade. They need water for life and they need shade for shelter. And the point here is to provide shelter from the punishing sun and God is giving them that shelter. Now we may ask in our context how God provides for us well, the truth is, God's provision is as varied as our messes. Sometimes, He does give us the material resources we need, literally money or medicine or clothing or a plane ticket just when we need it, or maybe an unexpected opportunity opens up in the nick of time. Sometimes, He may give us a way out. He may provide some type of extraction or escape or evacuation. Sometimes, He provides for us by providing people. He provides the people you and I need to get through it. They could be friends or family members, co-workers or teachers. They could be strangers. The point is, God loves to work through people. And He can even use your competitors to become unforeseen comrades or turn enemies into allies. Think about it. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to chasten Israel with ruin and exile. But then He raised up Cyrus, the king of Persia, to break their chains and send them home. 
But we can't miss this next point. Embedded in this passage is an important qualifier. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Yes, He will not forsake us. He will give us what we need. This passage promises that when we call on Him, He will provide what we need. But we need to pay close attention to what the Lord is saying. We need to be sober. When they cry out to me in their time of need, I will answer them. But notice this, God does not necessarily remove us from the situation. Everything He talks about happening here happens in the wilderness. Sometimes He takes us out of the wilderness. Other times, He equips and forges us to be a witness in the wilderness. The promise is not that God will remove us, but that God will restore us. He says, I will strengthen you. You see, sometimes God has got us right in the place where He wants us, even if it's not the place where we want to be. You've heard me say it before, that our experiences are an ordination, an anointing to ministry. And what that means is that through the things we suffer, through the things that we experience, through the things, honestly, that we learn the hard way, God is anointing us and preparing us to share hope, to minister to other people in that same situation, in other contexts. So think about it this way. If you are a cancer survivor who follows Jesus Christ, God is going to use that experience. He's going to use that time and that season. He's going to redeem it, and He's going to make you a source of hope and faith and restoration or people who are going through cancer. Or there may be some other kind of conflict. Some kind of circumstance or situation. And all you want is for God to get you out of it. But maybe what God wants, maybe what God is doing is leaving you in that situation so that you can be the light, so that you can be the witness in that, in that wilderness. He wants you to be a witness rather than to escape. You may have even gotten in trouble all by yourself. Or maybe it's something that somebody else has done to you or happened to you. But whatever it is, God wants to redeem you and redeem that situation and through you to restore others. God works through the difficulties of our lives. He wants to bring light to dark places. But the only way He can take the light into dark places is by sending His people, allowing His people to be in dark places where that light can shine. You know, when I was doing jail ministry once, I knew a man who was serving a long sentence in the penitentiary. He was serving time for a variety of violence and drug charges. But while he was in prison, he came to know the Lord. Of course, when he first became a Christian, he prayed that God would let him out of prison. He, he assumed that now that he was a Christian, God was just going to throw open the, wide, the, the doors of the penitentiary and that he was going to be able to leave. But after years of what he thought was unanswered prayer, he matured and he came to understand Christ a little bit better. And he came to understand that rather than escape justice, God was going to restore his heart. 
He was going to remediate and rebuild his heart so that he could be the light of truth and compassion and love in that dark place. He said, I may not be free on the outside, but I'm free on the inside, and right now, that's where God wants me. He wants me free on the inside so that I can tell these men about Him. And I think about many of you who've been through terrible, challenging situations, who've watched friends and children and parents go through difficult things. I think about our own Doug and Barbie Beach. They found themselves in the wilderness of mental illness, struggling to help their son, praying that God would give them something, anything to help. But you know what? God didn't help them escape the wilderness. Instead, He did just what He said. He would strengthen them. He supplied them where they were. And now they are using that experience to bless and restore so many other people through their ministry of mental health and restoration. Chances are that you are not the only person lost in your wilderness. And either God is going to get you out or He's going to equip you with the tools and the assurance you need to be His witness in that wilderness. God does not promise to get you out, but He does promise to provide what you need if you'll trust Him. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Paul said, We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Sometimes God doesn't want us to escape. He wants us to endure. And so God provides for us by giving us strength, by fortifying us with the fruit of His Spirit, That spiritual superfood that makes endurance possible. Love and joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He also gives us prayer, not only so that we can plead to Him for help, but so that we can unload all of those burdens that we can't bear all by ourselves. But most of all, He gives us hope. And understand this, hope is not just wishful thinking. Hope is having confidence of a future because you trust a person. It's like saying, I don't know what's going to happen in my marriage, but I do trust Morgan. Hope is saying, I don't know what the future holds, but I know that God holds the future. And even though the details are fuzzy, hope is looking beyond the situation at hand and anchoring one's confidence in the trust of another. Hope is saying, Lord, I can endure this, not because I'm strong, but because I know that you love me and you are faithful And we trust Him because God does not go back on His covenant promises. The glory of Israel will not lie or change, for He is not a man that He should change His mind. And God gave the life of His own Son to prove that He loves us. And by the power of His resurrection, He also proved that He does have the power to make a difference in our lives. That He has the power to save us even when we die. point is, and listen carefully, God gives us exactly what He knows we need. Exactly when He knows we need it. So if you have prayed, and God appears to have said no, or doesn't appear to answer, I want you to consider this. That when God says no, or when He he delays, it's because He has something better 
plan than what you're asking it for. God's mercy and grace is not an escape plan. It is an empowerment plan. If you look at the most righteous people in the Bible, they are not the ones that God pulled out of the fire or out of prison or down from the cross. They're not the ones that got pulled out of trouble. They are the ones that God sustained in the midst of trouble. And the greatest example of that is Jesus Christ, the most righteous and the only pure person who ever lived. God did not spare him from suffering, but for the joy set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross for you and for me. You may be in the wilderness right now. Maybe even a wilderness of your own making, surrounded by mayhem. But God has not abandoned you or taken away His promise or your purpose. Restoration may not mean that you go back to the way things were, because God did not take, simply take Israel back to the promised land. Rather, He looked beyond that restoration to resurrection, to something even better, from mortality to eternity. But please hear this. If you're in the wilderness, if your life is a ruin, He's not just saying, stay put. He's saying, I am with you. He is the one who is with us in our wilderness. So how is He going to take that ruin? How is He going to take that wilderness and transform it? into a witness. Heavenly Father, it is hard to endure not only our own suffering, but the suffering of others. We cry out, we plead that You would get us out of this, that You would end it, that You would change it, whatever it may be. And Lord, sometimes we just do not hear your voice or your word over the sounds of our own lament. But we ask you, O Lord, to speak to our hearts, not only for ourselves, but for those we love, that you would speak to us and remind us that you are with us and that you will provide what we need. You will strengthen us, whether you're bringing us out of the wilderness or, or keeping us there as a witness. Whatever the situation, Lord, help us to have our hope firmly grounded in your promise that just as you restored the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will restore us. You will bring us from ruin to restoration. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. It is in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray.